Providence uh, out in Lyman, we've been going through Matthew. And we've been going through Matthew 22 up to this time. Um, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians have all gotten together in order to challenge Jesus. Jesus and the disciples had just come to Jerusalem. This is the final week of Christ's life as he uh, begins the passion narrative, we sometimes call it. And uh, the religious leaders were prepared, and they were prepared to bring him questions, questions that they would trap him in and find a reason to convict him before uh, the Sanhedrin and before the Romans. And this passage, uh, verse 34 to 36, is the third question, the third and I would argue most important question that the Pharisees asked him. Uh, the first one, uh, it was a familiar one. You'll remember it even if you haven't read it recently. Do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? That was the trap that the, uh, the Pharisees set for Jesus. Um, it was another way of saying, how do we do our duty to the kingdoms in this world if you're bringing this kingdom of God, these two different and opposing kingdoms? So do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? The second question was from the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, and they thought they had the perfect paradox that amounted to a contradiction in the resurrection, namely about marriage. If there was a man or a woman who had seven husbands, uh, how, how was she married and who was she married to in the resurrection? So they asked basically, what is the nature of the resurrection? And Jesus responded uh, that what we learn about the resurrection is real because it comes from an eternal promise. Uh, Jesus said that the resurrection, we neither are married nor are given in marriage, uh, but are like the angels. And furthermore, that we know that there is a resurrection because God calls himself the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And what does that mean? But that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still live because God is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. He silenced the Sadducees with that answer. And this comes to uh, the third question, which is from another Pharisee that asks, what is the great commandment? This seems to be one of those questions where the, uh, uh, the, the questions have been spent already. Their traps have been spent. Uh, so this Pharisee comes with his own question, what is the great commandment? And we'll discuss what that means and how Jesus answers there. Uh, but it's clear at this point in the narrative that the Pharisees and all their associates have spent all their questions after this third question here. And Jesus then comes to them with his own question. He wanted to know something from them. He wanted to know what did they think of the Messiah or the Christ? And that's how he closes the passage. And that's how we wrap up this idea of uh, what is the great commandment and who is the Christ. But first, the third question, the third question is from the Pharisees. It's a bit different than the previous two about paying taxes to Caesar and about the nature of the resurrection, because it's not obvious, like in the former two, that there was a trap laid behind the question. After the first two questions, Jesus left the leaders, Matthew says, astonished and marveling because he seemed not only to dispense with their trap, um, the most tangled paradoxes of the time of the rabbis, these were questions that the rabbis wrestled with back and forth all day, but in his answers, he didn't just evade, evade their traps, he, he taught truths that changed lives. He taught for the sake of the crowds who were hearing, not just for those hypocrites who were trying to trap him. He taught them, for instance, the problem of living in the kingdoms of man and the kingdom of God at the same time. That's in verses 17 to 22. He taught them that paying taxes to Caesar is not so tough a problem as it might seem. Just give to Caesar what belongs to him and give to God what belongs to him. You owe taxes to your king, so give the king his taxes. And your earthly king is also God's king. He can't extract from you what belongs to God alone. So as you give your taxes to your king, you give your spiritual service to your Lord. Give that to him. And that was as simple as it gets, the way to resolve the kingdoms of the world and the kingdoms of God, the kingdom of God. 
And then Jesus responded to what the Sadducees thought was the slam dunk proof against the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection, but they believed it was a contradiction. The, uh, Jesus said simply, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Again, he didn't fall for their trap, but he also did something more important for the sake of the crowds listening. He taught the religious leaders and all who are listening that no one who belongs to the people of God will ever die in the truest sense. No one who belongs to the people of God will ever die. God is the God still of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He's the God of them forever, which means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they still possess the promise. They still possess it even in the grave, which means that death is no obstacle to God's promise that he will be their God. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still live. And if anyone has the faith of Abraham, she lives as well. The covenant God makes with you, his people, isn't ended in death. And God's promise isn't ended by death. Now, this third question in the series, like I said, is something different. It's not a loaded question. It seems like much more of a sincere question. It was definitely still part of the plot of the religious leaders. That's apparent. We get it from verse 35 that it was still to test Jesus. That's why this Pharisee came to him. But there are some cues in the setting, I think, that tell us that this question is more genuine than the previous two. After the Pharisees heard how Jesus answered the Sadducees in the question about the resurrection, they gathered together, it says. They huddled, uh, planning out their next steps. And then what happens in this huddle is out of the huddle came one of them, a lawyer, the narrative says, to ask his own question. So you wonder, was he a part of the conspiracy of the Pharisees? Did they send him out to ask this question, or did he come out on his own? We don't know the answer. Matthew doesn't tell us. But Matthew does tell us that he was a lawyer. And that lawyer is not an attorney as we think of it. This lawyer was an expert in the law. That's what it means in uh, Matthew's gospel. A lawyer is an expert in the law. And this lawyer had a question about the law. Jesus purported to teach the truth of the law of Moses. And the lawyer wanted to know his answer. Something in every, every lawyer in Israel would have wanted to know. And it's this, which is the great commandment of the law? That's the question the lawyer poses in verse 36. Which is the great commandment in the law? Even if the lawyer had in mind to trap Jesus here, that doesn't take away from the fact that this is genuinely still a good question. And in Jesus' answer, you don't hear a rebuke like you heard in the previous two questions. Jesus answers not to counter a trap, but to answer the question. And he gives a very complete answer, we'll see. Not just what is the great commandment, but he gives more. What are the two great commandments? And then he goes on to give the lawyer a question that he didn't think to ask, a question that was not about the law, but about himself, the question that the lawyer and any of the religious leaders had failed to ask yet, and it was this, what do you think about the Christ? And with that question, Jesus follows up that great principle of the law with the other great principle of all the teachings of Scripture, which is who is the Messiah? Specifically, where did he come from? Or whose son is he? So in the passage here before us today, you have a question from the lawyer and a question from Jesus. And in these two questions you have summed up, I'll argue the two most important teachings in the Bible right here in this passage. What is the great commandment? Or in other words, we could put it, what does God require of you? And who is Jesus Christ? Those two things. Our Presbyterian brothers start their catechism off with this question. It's question number three in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I come from the Presbyterian tradition. Some of you do too, uh, so you'll recognize this. It asks you, basically, what is the basic message of the Bible? How do you summarize the Bible's teaching? 
and Westminster Catechism. Question number three gives us the question, who, what do the scriptures principally teach? And the answer, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. There are the two summary principles of scripture. What man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. If you grew up Reformed Presbyterian, that answer just rolls off your tongue. There are two things that the scripture is about most fundamentally. Who is God? What should we believe about him? And what does God require of you? What is your duty towards him? As to the first question, if you've been raised Reformed, and the other Reformed, the Continental Reformed tradition, you have another ready answer. It comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, question number four. It asks simply, um, what, is, what does the law of God require? And the answer, interestingly enough, is just the words of Matthew 22. And it quotes verse, Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, when Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I'll venture to guess that most of you hearing me today have known and heard the great commandment. You know that the law is summed up with love God and love your neighbor. But try to imagine as we go through the passage that you are like this lawyer, perhaps not hearing this for the first time, uh, perhaps hearing it for the first time, and maybe for especially for the Jews who were standing around Jesus among the crowds, some of them were hearing this for the first time. The answer, even for the lawyers, was by no means obvious that this was the way that you would summarize the law. Jesus probably wasn't the first rabbi to answer the question this way, but the question was still debated. Different rabbis had different opinions on how the law should be summed up. The problem was there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. 613, and that was the, of the profession of the rabbis and the lawyers to count them. It was important. You knew how many commandments there were, 613. And there's no summary page in the Old Testament and no table of contents that tells you this is the principle that unifies all those commandments. Israel simply had the law, the law with a capital L, and they knew that God taught them that law, that he requires obedience to all of them. There's no one command that you can prefer above the others. God obligates you to all of it. In Deuteronomy, Moses told the people as they were entering the promised land on Mount Ebal to recite these words to themselves. This is in Deuteronomy 27, where the Lord says, the people shall say, cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law. So when you have all the words of this law, and that means 613 commandments to keep, it's natural to ask this question. What is the essence of that law? What do all these 613 commandments have in common as a single meaning? And Jesus takes his answer from two different sections of the law. You'll see what he quotes. The first commandment comes from a passage that we read earlier that every Israelite had memorized. They'd known it by heart. They knew Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 because they would recite it morning and evening in their households and in the synagogues. This is what every Jewish worshiper knew. He was called the Shema. And the Shema is just the Hebrew word for hear. It's the first word of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, because that's how it began. Deuteronomy 6.4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So as a summation of the law, Jesus' answer, going to Deuteronomy 6.4, made perfect sense. Because the Shema was already familiar. It was already not just familiar, but it was at the center of all Jewish understanding of the meaning of the Torah. 
and it's at the center, we understand, of the Christian understanding of the Bible's teaching. We don't recite it so frequently as the Jews did. Maybe that would be a habit that would be good for us to get into. The message is God is one. God is not divided. And what does that mean? It means for our love for God and our love for one another should also be not divided. It should be one. We don't have essentially two commandments. We have one commandment explained in two. Love for God should be with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. In other words, with integrity. Integrity is a word that comes from the Latin. It means one, one undividedness. In other words, with your whole being. In Jesus' words, he says, uh, he's quoting from the Greek Old Testament here. Uh, he puts mind in the place of strength where we have in Deuteronomy 6, 4, or 6, 5. You love the Lord with your heart uh, and your soul and your strength. Jesus here inserts mind because that's the way it is in the Greek Old Testament. There isn't too much to make of that, I don't think or that's at least from the commentators, the message is that it's the whole self that's required to be devoted to the Lord. Heart, mind, and strength. The heart refers to that inner person or your will, and the soul refers to the life in you. Typically, the use of the soul in Greek and Hebrew is that life, your desires and your emotions all wrapped up in it. And the mind, the mind can also refer to the heart, but it also has the sense of your understanding. You Worship with your mind, it means you worship rightly with your understanding and your reasoning as part of your being. So what the law is doing and what Jesus is reciting is that there is nothing in your being that can be excluded from your duty to love God as your highest love. But Jesus also gives a second great commandment. And this time it's from a more obscure portion of the Old Testament. The Shema wasn't the only principle that Jesus brought to bear when he was asked to summarize the law. If you are in Leviticus 19 or you go there, it comes from a section in your Bible that might be called various laws or sundry laws. Often your Bible will have headings and that's uh, um, in, inevitably how they title it. Sundry laws because they seem to be laws that are just unrelated. Uh, in Leviticus 19, you have laws about how to act, offer sacrifices, laws about how to uh, reap, not reap the corners of your field, to leave your harvest, part of your harvest for the poor, uh, not to keep the wages of a hired man overnight, not to put a stumbling block in front of the blind. And in verse 19, 18 of Leviticus 19, the Lord commands against hating your brother in your heart. And he says this in conclusion. He says in Leviticus 19, 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So in these two commandments, then, are summed up all the teaching of the law and the prophets, Jesus says. All of Scripture, he says, hangs on, or we can say depends on, this teaching. And the love of your neighbor, then, is inextricably tied up with your love for God. It can't be separated. To separate them, or to obey any of those 613 commandments without them, is fundamentally to break the law. In other words, you can't understand the law and the prophets without understanding that basic principle that Jesus is giving you. And there are two principles contained in the great commandment. Love is the fulfillment of the law, namely love for God and love for your neighbor. And the second principle is that that love is expressed with your whole being. It's your heart, it's your soul, and it's your mind. So the first principle first. That love is the fulfillment of the law, and that's not just what I made up. You might recognize it from Romans 13. Uh, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's how Paul draws the line between love for neighbor 
and the law itself, because he says love does no harm to a neighbor. And that's the reason why love is the fulfillment of the law. One of the things every believer needs to know about the law of God is that it's an expression of God's character. He doesn't just give his commandments out of caprice. All of those 613 commandments have their foundation, their head, in this great commandment. He didn't command you not to glean on the corners of your fields out of caprice. He did it because of the sake of love for your neighbor. He didn't command that you uh, offer sacrifices in a particular way, but because God desired worship in the way that he had ordained, the way he had appointed. He doesn't give his people commands out of caprice. He commands you to live in a way that you would be more like him. And God, in his being, is perfect love. We say God is love as a summary expression or a definition of God, and sometimes we say it a little bit too quickly or we say it too flippantly, but it is true. God is love, and he is perfect love in himself, meaning the Father loves the Son, and the Father loves the Spirit. The Son and the Spirit love the Father. Mutual love is the character of our triune God, and our God is unique among all the so-called gods of the world because he is triune. He loves himself. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. God's nature, His triune nature, is the most basic expression of love because God loves and He can love within Himself. And God is also perfect love toward His creation. Because God is love, He expresses it both within and outside Himself. Most significantly, God loves the world He created. We have that also from John John 3.16, we all know it by heart, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The incarnation of Christ, when God sent his son into the world, is that great expression of God's love for what he made. God is such perfect love that it was impossible that he would do anything else but love his creation, the creation he made, even after it was corrupted with sin. And so he expressed that love by entering into that creation himself through his son, so that by the son he would save those he claimed from the world. And he would not only save those in the world who once hated him, but he would renew the entire world to recreate it from its corruption into a new and incorruptible world. So God's perfect love is both inward within himself and it's outward toward his creation, and we should take note of that. That's God's characteristic love, inward within himself and outward toward his creation. And so his law tells you that to be like him, your love has to be the same way. It must be directed Godward toward the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just as God's love is directed within himself. And it has to be directed neighborward to your fellow creatures. The love of God, the love that's characteristic of God, is both love for him and your neighbor. And we have that clear testimony from Scripture that that's the only way any of the law of God can be fulfilled if it's out of love for God and love for your neighbor. Of all the 613 commandments in the Old Testament, none of them can be obeyed unless you hang them on Jesus, to use Jesus' words, on love for God and for neighbor. You can't say you love God if you don't love your neighbor, first of all. John the Apostle told the church this, he writes it in 1 John chapter 4, we love him because he first loved us. But if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God 
must love his brother also. You can love God because God first extended his neighbor love toward you. We love him because he first loved us. He loved us with that outward love, that neighbor love that he commands. Because Christ loved you and he gave himself for you while you were still his enemy. The love you show according to the law is therefore then to make you an imitator of God. And this is how Paul puts it in Ephesians 4. Be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ loved you. Then as he goes on in Ephesians 5, he paints the picture for you of what love for God does among your neighbors. That love, if we have love for God and our neighbor, causes us to walk, walk circumspectly, he says, not encouraging or partaking in deeds of darkness, refusing to be bitter or angry with one another or speaking evil of one another, but being, Ephesians 4.32, kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians is so helpful for us to understand not just the behavior that the law requires, but the reason that behavior is required. You're to walk in the light, he says, in spirit and truth, because you are to be imitators of God. There's a reason you're called to walk circumspectly, because we are to be imitators of God who loved outside himself, and he loved even those who hated him. That's one way that you know that you have love for God, because your love for your neighbor is from your love for God. If you were a Christian, when you can love those who are unlovely, those who seem unlovable, that's the real force of the great commandment, I would say, that as imitators of God, you love the unlovely. And if you're honest with yourself, the neighbor that uh, Jesus is talking about here is not just your next-door neighbor. That would be the easy way to think about it, to have love for your next-door neighbor. But in many cases, the more challenging love is that closer neighbor that you have. It's maybe your brothers, your husbands, your wives, your children, your parents, those relationships that are closer and those relationships, therefore, that are more difficult to love well and to love with a godly love. And it may not just be other people. It may be you who is unlovely. The love of God is that you were reconciled to him because he loved you first. And because God acted in love toward you, you came to know and to love God. That's how a Christian loves his neighbor. That's the only way a Christian should love his neighbor, out of his love for God. I feel like sometimes Christians have to be told, in some sense, we have permission to love like this, that to love the unlovely, we can and we should love them not for their sake, but for God's sake. There's no making an unlovely person lovely to you necessarily, but there is still love that you're obligated to show them. Right? So we can give permission to ourselves to say, I love the unlovely not for their sake, but for God's sake. When God says, love your neighbor as yourself, just about everyone at this point has in mind someone. Someone that you have in mind about whom you're thinking, how am I going to love them? And it's okay to recognize that your love for your neighbor is broken and it's difficult and it's hard to muster up. And in fact, there's no human way to love them as scripture commands you to love them. And so in that case, you have permission to say to yourself, I'm not going to love this unlovely person for their own sake. They don't deserve that I would love them for their sake, but I am going to act in love toward them for the Lord's sake. I'm going to think of the love for my neighbor as the way I show forth my love for God. That's neighbor love in the context of the great commandment. 
I'm going to show the love for my neighbor as the way I show forth my love for God. That's far from a compromise in your love for your neighbor, I think. I think it's actually a reflection of how God loves you. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, in loving you and saving you, didn't do it because you were lovable, but because in loving you, God demonstrated something. What did he demonstrate? He demonstrated the kind of love that he has in himself, the love of the Father toward the Son and the Spirit, and vice versa. His own love, Romans 5 says, it was the perfect and glorious demonstration of his love that he reached out in Christ to love sinners. He did it to demonstrate his own love, not first for the sake of unlovely sinners. That sounds shocking, but he didn't do it for your sake. He did do it for your benefit, though, to show how great his love is. To have the love of God, the love that Scripture commands, it has to be demonstrated to the unlovely. That's the only way we know the love of God, because it was demonstrated to us while we were enemies. And you can't say you have the love of God if you don't love your neighbor. And so when you ask yourself whether you're loving God well, which is a question all of us should ask frequently in our times of quiet and our devotions, how am I loving God well? What is it that makes me know that I'm loving God? Your answer shows in how you love that unlovely neighbor you have in mind. There's a step of discipleship that might take a while for us. How do we love that unlovely neighbor that you may be thinking about? You can't love God without loving your neighbor. And you, on the converse side, you can't truly love your neighbor if you hate God. There's no love that will be any good to your neighbor if it doesn't come from your love for God. There's a kind of false love that we entertain sometimes. It's called, uh, you might call it buddy love. That love that is so-called that might actually be hateful. You probably know what I mean when I call it buddy love. It's that so-called love that you have for your friends or your buddies. That so-called friendship that validates them in their sin. Sometimes it even participates with them in their sin. In desiring to be friendly with your friends, you approve of things that aren't fitting for saints and that aren't fitting for lovers of God. Ephesians 5 talks about these things. He talks about covetousness, filthiness, foolish talking, and coarse jesting. Things that you might do because you want a good relationship with your friends. Maybe even because you want them to like you so that you can have an opportunity to witness to them, ironically but they cause you to cast aside your love for God in the process. And in the process, you teach your friends to invite the wrath of God on themselves. And so doing that, you are actually hating your neighbor. Godly neighbor love doesn't have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but exposes them. It may make your friends not love you. You'll have fewer buddies than before, but you'll be demonstrating the love of God to them. This is loving God with your heart, your soul, and your mind. It's singularness in your love for God, integrity in your love for God. It's undivided in you, and it's undivided toward God and neighbor. It excludes the so-called love that participates in works of darkness. This is how we love. This is how love for God and love for neighbor are unified in the two great commandments. Love for God inspires your love for your neighbor. And the love for your neighbor is the demonstration of your love for God. This is God's own love, Romans 5.8. Love for God inspires the love you have for your neighbor, and your love for your neighbor is that demonstration of your love for God. And so Jesus' answer to the lawyer's question, 
unified all those 613 commandments in the law. He unified the law with love being its fulfillment and being fulfilled in love directed toward God and neighbor. There was no trick and there was no gotcha moment in the question. The religious leaders by this time, I mentioned, had run out of tricks. And not being able to catch Jesus in an error about the law, what did they do again? But they had another huddle, verse 41. They huddled together again, and it's at this point that Jesus returns to them with a corollary to their question. They're still talking to one another, and Jesus, as it were, shouts this question to them. The lawyer wanted to know what the greatest commandment was. What did God desire? And the question Jesus poses, poses is the other half of what Scripture teaches. Namely, what, as the Westminster Catechism puts it, what are you to believe concerning God? But Jesus phrases the question this way. He, he asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Verse 42, whose son is he? And this would have been an easy Sunday school question for the Pharisees. The Messiah, the Christ, was clearly the son of David. Everyone knew that. They didn't have to huddle. That answer probably just came from the midst of the crowd of religious leaders. He's the son of David. The Messiah was going to be the one from the line of David who would take up the throne and he would restore the kingdom of Israel. It was common knowledge. So the Pharisees, we have recorded from Matthew, answer plainly, he's the son of David. All right, so that's established. We know that. We have all this common ground. That's the easy part. Everyone agrees the Messiah is the son of David. And now then comes the paradox, the trick that Jesus has for the religious leaders. He says, as he continues in verse 43, excuse me. His follow-up in verse 43 is, And how then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And Jesus, you'll recognize, is quoting Psalm 110 here, which was something of an enigma for the Jews. The Jews had a problem with Psalm 110, especially that phrase, The Lord said to my Lord. In your Bibles, that first Lord, you'll recognize as probably in all capital letters, uh, capital L-O-R-D, if you look there. That means that in the original language, where Jesus is taking the psalm from in the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament, the word that David actually wrote was Yahweh. It was God's covenant name. That's why it's in all caps there. It's the name that the Lord identified himself with in Exodus 3, when he spoke to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses asked, who should I say is sending me? And the Lord said, I am has sent you. And then the second Lord, that's in a capital L with, uh, with small letters, he said to my Lord, is not all caps because that's a different word. In the second case, that word um, we, is, was tr originally translated from Adonai, which is not God's covenant name. That's a title for the Lord. It means master. So literally you have from Psalm 110, verse 1, Yahweh said to my master, sit at my right hand. And this was the enigma that the Jews had to deal with. They knew or most of them knew that this psalm was written by David. It was part of the title of Psalm 110, a psalm of David, and it was messianic. It spoke of the Messiah to come. The master that David is speaking of, by the Spirit, Jesus says, he makes sure to uh, makes clear to the Pharisees that this, these are the words of Scripture. Scripture, David is speaking by the Spirit. The master David speaking of is the Messiah. The Messiah is David's Lord. But the Jews, as you saw in verse 42, also understood clearly that the Messiah was David's son. But it doesn't make sense that David would refer to one of his descendants as his Lord. Your father can be your Lord, but no one speaks of their son, especially a distant son, as Lord. The only one who David, the king of Israel, could call Lord would be his king, 
Who's the king of David? Who's the king of the king of Israel? The only one that David could call Lord would be the king of kings, the Lord himself. It leaves you with this difficult conclusion that this son of David is the king of kings. So there's that paradox. The, the Jews were left to resolve, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? The interesting thing about the question is that there's no answer given by anyone. There's a whole crowd of Pharisees huddling together. The experts in the law, none of them have an answer. The Pharisees aren't able to answer. Indeed, no one in the crowd surrounding the Pharisees were able to answer. There wasn't even an attempt to answer, as verse 46 says. And you might understand why. This was the kind of question, if you were a Jew, you would be well advised not to answer. A wrong answer might get you accused of blasphemy, calling a man, even the son of David, God. So the answer that was hanging in the air, but that was uttered by no one, is that David's Lord, my Lord, the one to whom Yahweh says, sit at my right hand and rule as king, the Messiah, is also David's son. So this son of David must be the one who will reign, not just as Messiah, but who will reign at the right hand of God himself. The implication for the Pharisees was as plain as day. But all the same, none of them dared to utter the answer. The son of David, the Messiah, must be the Lord himself. That was the conclusion that you had to draw from Psalm 110 but they refused to draw from Psalm 110. And then notably, Jesus didn't answer the question either. He just let them hang there, slack-jawed. It was apparent to the Pharisees, right then at that moment, that they did not just fail to trap Jesus in their questions. With all the best intellects, the best trick questions they could bring towards Jesus, they weren't succeeding in trapping him. But it was worse than that. They were about to get trapped themselves. They were about to get trapped into calling the son of David the son of God. So Matthew says in verse 46, from that day on, no one dared question him anymore. But the answer to the question, all the same, was obvious enough. Obvious to anyone who had thought about that conclusion that Jesus was leading them to. No one dared answer because no one was willing to admit that conclusion. David's son is David's Lord. Jesus, the promised son of David, as he was acclaimed by the crowds all that week, Matthew labors to tell you this is what the crowds were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. He was not just the heir to the throne of Israel, but he was the son of God himself. It's a very fitting question to ask the Pharisees after answering the question, what does God require in his law? Because just as important as knowing what the law means, what is the great commandment is who is this Lord that you're commanded to love with your whole being? The capstone to the whole discourse about what do you owe your allegiance to? Who do you owe your allegiance to? And how do you render unto God what is God's? And what is the nature of the resurrection? And what is God's greatest commandment? Tops it off with the answer from the Hebrew scriptures about who this God is, specifically who his Messiah is, the anointed son of David. And you should take away from that answer what the Pharisees probably didn't take away, that there's no use obeying the law of God especially the great commandment, if you don't know who God is. There's no use. It will do you no good obeying 613 commandments if you don't know who the God is, out of whose nature they come, if, and if you don't love him as he's commanded you to love him through his law, if you don't worship him through the Son, through the Christ whom he sent. He's not just the teacher that instructed the Israelites rightly what it means to obey God's law. He's the Son of God himself. Who is the one your obedience to the law is directed? He's the one you are to love 
with your whole heart, your whole soul, and your whole mind. To love God with your whole being is to love Jesus Christ, whom God sent to you. That's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The only way you can fulfill the spirit of the law in your obedience to it is by imitating Christ, who fulfilled the law and the prophets by extending the, the love of the Father by becoming incarnate man and making the offering for sin on your behalf. Love is the fulfillment of the law because Christ first loved you and gave himself for you. We love him, John says, because he first loved us. The great teaching of the Bible is that this great commandment is understood and obeyed because God has sent Christ to reach out to the world with the love of God. That in believing the Christ, David's son and David's Lord, you would have the love of God in you, loving him and loving your neighbor because he first loved you and gave himself for you. Let's pray. Father, your love is perfect, and it's been perfected toward us because we see you and we have you in our Savior. Let us take this instruction from your law and fulfill it in our whole being, our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, that we would be fitting spiritual offerings, demonstrating your love back to you and toward our neighbors. We pray especially for those neighbors we call to mind as we examine ourselves today, those we haven't loved well. We confess to you, Lord, we haven't loved them well, and we don't know how to love them well. So by your spirit, may you make us to love them as you loved us while we were yet enemies. By the mighty power that's ours in the Holy Spirit, and in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.